Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And thanks for tuning in this week. Special thanks to the library, as always, for letting us record here and setting us up with everything. They're great partners. We really appreciate it. And be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And uh, why don't you go ahead and rate and review us as well. Let us know how we're doing. If you have any feedback, be sure to send it to my email. That's srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that is srichardson at cleveland.com. Feel free to send feedback or anyone you might want to see on the show or anything like that. This week we had former Ohio Supreme Court Justice Bill O'Neill. Very recently former, right? Very recently former, yes. Should add he's a uh, Democratic candidate for governor now as well. So why did you guys have him on? I mean, Bill, I think everybody who knows anything about Bill probably knows about some of the more scandalous parts of his life. He's pretty good at, uh, (laughs) I don't know if you want to call it good, um, making headlines. Um, maybe for the wrong reasons. Um, so we wanted to have him on here to just kind of explore who he is a little more. And, you know, I, I don't know, Katie, what'd you think? Bill O'Neill got my name wrong a couple times. So uh, he called me Katie. So that, that's, uh, that's that. I think Bill O'Neill is a really interesting figure in Ohio politics. And I think this podcast, we're trying to have interesting people on the show. And if you want to talk about somebody who's lived an interesting life, I mean, it's certainly Bill O'Neill. He's probably had like six different careers over the course of his life. He's a registered nurse. He's a tur- an attorney. He's been a judge. He was a reporter for a while. He is a former military. He served in Vietnam. Yeah, like talking to him about his life, I, I think he he's a pretty dynamic figure and he's also you know you sit down with him he he is personable that was a long pause he did get my name wrong <laughs> <laughs> but it was like you know we're, we're we're like 20 minutes into the conversation and we're talking with him about all of his background and it's just like through 20 minutes of conversation there's like five hollywood movies that are playing in my head there's you know, Bill O'Neill, the lieutenant colonel who's escorting journalists around Vietnam. There's Bill O'Neill who was, uh, uh, you know, a state prosecutor. There's Bill O'Neill who was a journalist. There's Bill O'Neill who was a union organizer. And it's and, and that's all before 1990. So He's done a lot. I mean, he's a busy guy. He was also a single dad and I believe has four children. He is a parent of an adopted child. So, I mean, a very full life. So he's he's had a pretty busy life then, just between all of that professional stuff, his personal stuff. Yeah, and most people around his age, you know, call it a day and retire. Bill O'Neill is does not want to retire. I mean, he is, Bill O'Neill wants to be in the scene. With that, let's listen to the interview with Bill O'Neill. Bill, thanks so much for joining us here on Ohio Matters. How are you doing today? I'm excellent. All right, we wanted to jump right into it because a lot of people know who you are. Sure but they probably don't know your background. Um, I think even while I was researching, I had to find out quite a bit about your background. So I really do want to start from the beginning. I mean, you're Ohio born and bred, correct? That is correct. Uh, Maple Heights was the first home. And, uh, you know, a lot of your background, like I said, it gets kind of washed over. You know, they know you won the 2012 election with, you know, only $4,000 basically. But, you know, what was your youth like in Ohio? Well, my dad uh, worked for a company called Cleveland Graphite Bronze out on St. Clair, and we traveled a lot because he was a uh, a rising star in the sales industry. So 
I was born in Maple Heights, and when I was three, I ended up living in Glendale, California. Then I came back to uh, Cleveland Heights and uh, went to Christ the King, and east, now East Cleveland. And from there, we went to New York, which is where I was really raised, in uh, northern Jersey, right outside the George Washington Bridge. And then we came back, and I graduated from uh, Cleveland Heights High School. Where did you go to college? Ohio University, of course. Uh, I'm, I'm a bobcat, and uh, as are two of my daughters. What did you study while you were at Ohio University? Journalism, no Journalism. question about it. That, that led to a very interesting uh, Army career. Uh, I was in Army ROTC at uh, Ohio University in the middle of the Vietnam War, and uh, I was on active duty six, uh, six days after graduating from Ohio University. Went to Vietnam, and uh, somebody, somebody noticed my journalism degree from Ohio University, so I ended up uh, escorting the major networks. Uh, my job would be to take them to where the war was on any given day and bring them home safe. Can you tell us a little bit more about your time in Vietnam? I know that's a big part of who you are as a veteran. Well, as you, as your listeners may or may not know, I was awarded the Bronze Star while I was in Vietnam. I was a lieutenant. Uh, it was uh, the end of the war, and I was part of the last invasion into Laos. And uh, obviously, we didn't go into Laos, but uh, <clears throat> six six of the people I was escorting died when I was gone for a week on R and R, so it was, it was an amazing assignment, and it led to my uh, career in journalism. How does how does that affect you when, you know, you have these people that you're escorting, and then you you know you take a week for R and R, sure, and come back and you know they're dead. Well, the most uh, the the most famous one was Larry Burroughs from Life Magazine, and I have his I have his book in my study at home, and he was the most. He's got a book that says Compassionate Photographer, and and I escorted him uh, right up until the day he died. And it's, you know, it, it doesn't leave you, but it's, you know, it happens. I'm interested what you think of uh, Vietnam kind of as a whole, um, as an armed engagement. We've seen, sure. you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, and they're often compared to Vietnam. So I'm wondering, you know, and as a Democrat, Democrats tend to be the ones who are a little more uh, critical of Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. So I'm wondering what you think of Vietnam as it compares to some of the current conflicts we're in. Well, it's interesting. I'm kind of caught in the middle of that. My uh, my dad was an aviator in World War II, and he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. And uh, the story we have in the family that makes everybody pause is uh, we say that dad was the, the ultimate liberal. Uh, he let me choose which branch of the Army I wanted to go into. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of mixed views now on Vietnam, but the bottom line for me is uh, when my country needed me, I stood up, I volunteered, and I went. And uh, you mentioned Iraq. My son, Sean Patrick, who's a uh, graduate of Chagrin Falls High School, uh, is a loadmaster in the, in the United States Air Force, and uh, he served in Iraq, and I'm proud of him. Was your dad's service one of the reasons you decided to join the service? I don't think I had any choice. I really don't. You know, he, he uh, I tried to join the Air Force, uh, and one, one vision test ended that, and uh, if I wasn't going to fly for the Air Force, I didn't want to be in the Air Force. And that would have been in 1965. And in 67, it was my dad said, this war is not ending. You're going to be going. So you may as well be an officer. So that's, that's how I got commissioned. Were you drafted or did you join? No. No, the draft, didn't, the draft was raging at that point. But I had a student deferment for four years to go to Ohio University. The only way you could get out of Vietnam back then was uh, if you got married and then they raised it to get married and have a child. So that's where there's a lot of children in that age. Or if you taught school. If you became a school teacher, you were exempt from the draft. But no, I was draft eligible, and I volunteered. I did, 
I did basic training at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, the home of the infantry, between my sophomore and junior year at Ohio University. Your dad seems to be a pretty big influence on your life from the sound here. Is that correct? Oh, the whole family is. You know, this, our family our family started at 88th and Superior, not very far from where we're sitting here right now. There was, there was two of them. And uh, I always say that uh, the amazing thing about the O'Neill family is, you know, it's in the Depression. They had nine kids. And, you know, to call them uh, poor would be charitable. <laughs> but at the corner of their street was a world-class elementary school that was guaranteed by the Ohio Constitution. And the family has just succeeded. We've got, I think, we're trying to get the count together, but we think there's 350 of us now in Cuyahoga County. And uh, I'm just... Uh, uh, very proud of the O'Neill family. We got firefighters, we have cops, we have carpenters, we have bankers. We have, I think, we have everything. What were your parents like? Well, Dad started as a factory worker and uh, became a salesman, and uh, Mom was a, uh, a secretary, and that's how we ended up in Chagrin Falls. She was secretary to a, a manufacturer that started at 116th and Shaker, the Millbar Corporation, and. I like to say I was the first stock boy. That was my first job, and uh, uh, they were very good parents. They were very, you know, it's interesting. The one hallmark of our family that I recall is both parents were high school grads from Cleveland, John Hay and John Marshall. They put three kids through Ohio University at the same time, back in a time when that could be done. It can't be done today, but back then, uh, tuition, room, and board was $1,000 in the 60s. So people were getting out of college ready to start their career, which is exactly opposite of what we have today. I want to go back to, uh, you know, your time in the Army and uh, over in Vietnam. So you were a military member during one of the bigger events in Ohio, the Kent State shootings, correct? There were demonstrators on the college green at my commissioning in the United States Army in 1969. I was in Vietnam at the time of the Kent shootings. I went on to... Uh, I went on to retire from the Army as lieutenant colonel 30 years later. I served with a majority of the officers who were at Kent State. So I know those people. And a lot of, a lot of people miss, uh, miss the point that, you know, the victims who died and the victims who were shot, obviously our heart goes out to them. But the, the National Guard soldiers that were found in the middle of that scene are, are, are victims as well. There's no question. I guess I've never really heard that take before. You, oh, they're you scarred. On a they're, they were scarred for life. Every one of them. Every one of them was scarred for life. Nobody likes to take a life. Nobody likes to take a life of a student. That was that was mismanaged right from the top. So how do you, you know, you as a Democrat, and that was a pretty big, uh, you know, event in turning the tide, pretty much, you know, the public uh, consciousness against kind of the Vietnam War. Um, but here you are a vet and a very staunch supporter of the military. I'm a proud, I'm a proud vet. And also a Democrat, though. And I'm, I'm just, the, the confluence of all those things kind of together, you know, you're also from Ohio. Oh, it gets even more confusing when you realize that I went to nursing school at age 50, so I'm a registered nurse as well that works in a pediatric emergency department. Well, so I'm a very, I am a very confusing person. I accept that. Well, I'm wondering what kind of effect the, uh, the shooting sort of had on you being from Ohio, being... You know, you went to school here. They, those, you know, the people in school, they weren't that much younger than you. It, it is an evolving event. Don't forget that in the late 60s, before I graduated, there were annual riots at all the campuses 
Most of them at Ohio University were not really serious. It was usually just the kids breaking the window at the uh, the bookstore in anger at their, their prices. So when I was in Texas and knew that there was rioting in Athens in 69, you know, that was troubling because I was from Ohio University and I was on active duty as a lieutenant. But when I was in Vietnam and I read in Stars and Stripes that uh, kids had been killed on the campus of Kent State, I was horrified and saddened. You know, because there I was in Vietnam, and my home state is killing kids. It was just, it was a very confusing time, but uh, I do not back up from the fact I am a proud veteran. I'm glad I did what I did. I'm just wondering internally, how does, how do you process something like that? You know, you're over there, and you obviously believe in what you're doing over there, but then you see what happens at home. Where, you know, what, what, what goes through your mind? How do you process it? I don't think you have time in a war zone to process a whole lot. You know, I was uh, uh, in the second half of my year over there. I was on the road in a helicopter every day. And we're talking about uh, flying at treetop level into dangerous places. So what was happening at Kent, while it horrified me and saddened me, I didn't have a lot of time to process anything there. My my job was, uh, I led a 10-man unit. My, my job was to get them home safe and sound, and I succeeded. What sort of lessons do you think you learned from your time in Vietnam? Trust in yourself and trust in your team. Why didn't you pursue journalism when you came home? I did. I did. Can you talk a little bit about oh, that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had, a great, I had a great journalism career. I went to New York because uh, CBS had, uh, I, I think they were indebted to me because I kept their correspondence alive for a year. So I was with uh, Gary Shepard in uh, uh, Greenwich Village, and uh, we had Don Farmer, we had uh, Morton Dean, and uh, I went to New York and uh, thought I'd become a star. And a nice producer finally said, uh, uh, Lieutenant O'Neill, we will hire you this afternoon based on your references. He says, but that's a terrible idea. I said, why is that? He says, you'll be running for coffee for the next 10 years. He says, you need to go somewhere and get a real journalism job. I said, really? And he says, just get out of New York. And I ended up in Sandusky, Ohio, and I was hired on the spot at the Sandusky Register. I was a Huron bureau chief meaning I was the only one with a pencil and a camera. So I had all of Huron was mine. And then the one regret I have in my journalism career, and it was, it was, it was awful. Uh, three months into that career, I just loved the job. I was living on the lake. I was you know, writing for the front page of a small newspaper. It was fun. And I got the call from Columbus, and it was Hugh DeMoss with the DeMoss Report, Channel 4. And he says, uh, you have two hours to get down here for your interview and two, two weeks to f- quit your job and start at Channel 4. And I, and I remember the interview well. I said, Hugh, these nice people just hired me in a newspaper. And he says, two weeks, yes or no. So I, I started two weeks later at uh, Channel 4 in Columbus. I started with uh, Leon Bibb. He and I started on the same day. He came down from Bowling Green and I came down from Sandusky. What was your favorite part uh, about being a reporter? Excitement. I loved the excitement. Here I thought here I thought the station was doing me a big favor because they had a, a landlord that had all kinds of apartments all over town. They said, don't worry about housing. We got you a nice apartment. And so I went and I moved into my apartment. It just happened to be behind the station, right under the antenna. I was in my job for one week, and I get the call at 3 o'clock in the morning. And they said, there's a fire on the east side. Stop by the station, get the car, get the cameras, get the film. That's back when we were shooting film, and get over there. That was when I realized why Channel 4 had put me where they did.
you were close. They could call you. Just I was close. Time. I was. I was. <laughs> if there was a fire or a death or whatever, they they called me and they said, "Get the car and meet to meet a real reporter out at the state out of the site." <laughs> well, you sound like you wish you'd stayed with the register. Is that? Oh, absolutely. That was a great. You know, there. I don't think there's. Actually, I I mimicked that career when I got out of law school. I love small towns. I loved the fact that I lived in the uh, the third floor of an old house on Lake Erie in Sandusky. So when I went to law school, uh, I went to Geneva on the Lake, and I commuted in. I, I was 30 years old at that point. I went to law school on the GI Bill, and uh, that was driving in every single day. And I opened my law firm in the back of a $100 a month uh, uh, storefront. I had no relatives, no friends, just opened the door to see what would happen. And uh, it became an immensely uh, successful practice in under 18 months. Why did you decide to leave journalism and pursue law? I was hired by an organization called the Ohio Civil Service Employees Association right out of Channel 4. They said, we want you to be our media guy. And uh, they doubled my salary and gave me a company car and and an expense account. I said, this is cool. (laughs) So that's that's what I did. But about halfway through through my... uh, my career in the unions, uh, I got hit by a truck on a picket line. Uh, I ended up being in jail in Cincinnati during a union disturbance. And I noticed that it was the lawyers that were having the most impact at the union. So I just decided to go to law school. So I did. Could you expand a little bit more about how you ended up in jail? I don't think I heard that about you. <laughs> well, it's uh, you're the last one to hear it because every time I've run for office and every time I've applied for a job, I have to disclose, have you ever been in jail? And I said, yes. We were on a uh, organizing drive in uh, Cincinnati versus another union, and uh, we were maybe a little more aggressive than everybody wanted to be. I was the deputy director of our council. We had 13 workers. And we were let out of the Cincinnati uh, Netherlands Hilton, I believe it was, in chains on a Saturday night and put in jail. What were you arrested for? They didn't want us to be there because we had uh, we had rented a, uh, a suite and they were having a convention and we were recruiting their members and they were very angry about that. And they asked us to leave and we told them, look, we're from the Communications Workers of America. We've paid for this room. We're not leaving. And that was when I first met the Cincinnati SWAT team. <laughs> were they nice? They were not nice. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I'll be on record. I'm talking about handcuffs, both both wrists, and a chain of us being taken out through the lobby and thrown in jail on a Saturday night. When when was this? In the late 70s, 80s? 74. 74. I, oh, I know, I, I know it was 74 because it made big media because I had just recently finished uh, running in the primary for lieutenant governor of Ohio. I did that when I was 26 years old and some unknown guy from Lakewood by the name of Dick Celeste decided to start his career that time. And he, he beat me soundly in the primary. And we're, we're dear friends today. He contributed to my last campaign for Congress. So, you kind of I leave told, me... I told you, it was, I, I I told you I was confusing. I'm sorry. There's, there's just so much going on because it goes from, you know, veteran to journalist. How long were you working journalist for? Well, if you count the union days, because I was a journalist and an organizer, probably mm-hmm. six years. And then you... Uh, you Three decided, years in law school. Okay, so you you decided to become a lawyer, and then you were a lawyer for about another, what, 10 years? More than that. Uh, uh, interesting, uh, since we're doing a, a deep background story, in 84, my third child was born. Uh, my law firm had grown to four people. We had good insurance, and uh, Tiffany uh, ended up with 
displaced hips uh, bilaterally, and she needed surgery immediately uh, at uh, University Hospital here in Cleveland. And uh, it was declared to be a pre-existing condition, and they denied the surgery. And the doctor was telling me that uh, she won't walk if we don't get this done. So I called my friend Tony Celebrezzi, and I said, Tony, I need a job in the state tomorrow. And he says, you're done. Okay, good. So that's how I became an assistant attorney general in 84. And that actually has a funny story to go with it, too, because uh, Tony, Tony was the best employer I've ever had. But he told me, he says, I know who you are. You are my friend. You're gone in one year. As soon as your daughter has her surgery, you're gone. And I said, okay, boss, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. So Tiffany was successful. She's a commercial photographer in Solon right now. She did, she did real well. But I was in the pre-existing condition exclusion of insurance with my children 30 years ago. So I, I fully understand how personal that can be. But ultimately, uh, I ended up as a civil rights lawyer and I was working for one of the best civil rights lawyers in the state. Her name is Janet Jackson, and she's now the head of United Way in Columbus. And she's my, she's my hero. She's my all-time hero. So not the singer. No, 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 not that Janet Jackson. <laughs> this is uh, this is one that uh, she went on to become a judge, and she she was excellent. And uh, she came into my office in Cleveland. I think about three years into the career, and she says, "Billy," because that's what she used to call me. She says, "Billy, we're going to workers' comp." And I said, Janet, I don't know anything about workers' comp. And she says, you didn't know anything about civil rights, and you've done well. And she says, we're going to workers' comp. And then when, uh, when Tony left to run for governor, uh, Lee Fisher came and sought me out. And he says, I see you're still there. He says, will you run, uh, will you run Northeast Ohio for me? So I was his Northeast Ohio political director uh, in 90. And Lee, as you know, became the attorney general of Ohio. And uh, he told me the same thing that Tony had said. He says, one year from now, you are gone. He says, you are not a bureaucrat. He says, you're gone. I said, okay, boss, I got you. Uh, Four years later, when uh, Betty Montgomery became the Attorney General of Ohio, she literally came to my office and she says, I've heard about you. You're the one that's, uh, that's wearing body armor to work and going with the Cleveland SWAT team and boarding up houses. And you're, you're, you're a wild man. She says, you do understand. I'm a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're going to be gone in one year. And I, I told her, I said, you understand, you are the third Attorney General of Ohio to tell me that. And she looked at me, I loved, uh, I loved the encounter. Betty just looked at me and she says, I mean it. And I, I believed her. And that's how I became a Court of Appeals judge in 96. I want to back up just a little <laughs> bit. So you were a civil rights attorney. What, what sort of cases did you handle while you were a civil rights attorney? Great cases, just absolutely great cases. I took on, or we, the Ohio Civil Rights Commission, we took on General Motors on handicap discrimination, and we beat them. We, uh, we were into sexual harassment, and back then everybody was trying to figure out how do you even pronounce the word. Is it sexual harassment or is it harassment? But uh, we, we were doing sexual harassment cases here in the Cleveland office long before Clarence Thomas ran for, was appointed to the Supreme Court, or yeah, the United States Supreme Court. So I did uh, handicap discrimination, I did race discrimination, I did age, I did just about everything. And that, that followed, uh, I had been, I had been the chairman of the Ashtabula County Fair Housing Board, and I'd done some race uh, housing discrimination that uh, really stirred a bunch of people up, and and that led to the, the, the case that uh, everybody hears me talk about on the uh, campaign trail is that 
I had a black auto worker from uh, Lake County come to me, and his son had been taken out of Bowling Green State University in handcuffs, and he was, uh, he was wrongfully accused. And they took him to Meadville, Pennsylvania, and they had essentially ended his life. And uh, the father hired me, and uh, I had a four-day trial in Meadville, Pennsylvania, and walked him out of the courthouse as a free man. So I, I, know, I know race discrimination, I know age, I know handicap. I'm a civil rights lawyer. Tell me about the body armor wearing that to work. Jesus. Excuse me, I'm not allowed <laughs> to say that. Uh, Lee Fisher and Tom Merriman started a program called Operation Crackdown. Uh, I'm going to say it is in probably 91, 92. We teamed up with the Cleveland SWAT team. And there were drug houses. I think our first one was 149th in St. Clair. There were absolute drug houses. We went to court in the morning. That was my job. I was the first trial lawyer. Tom Merriman was my boss. And uh, we got a ex parte order to board the house up as a nuisance. It was a new statute. Lee Fisher was the first one to really understand it. And we actually went in with the Cleveland Police Department with a battering ram bulldozed down the door, arrested everybody on the spot. We had children's services with us in case there were any kids. We had carpenters with us. Within, t uh, I think Mike White was the mayor at that time. Within two hours, the house was boarded up. It had plywood on the walls or on the windows, and it was no longer a drug house. And oh, by the way, you asked about body armor. Uh, that was required. Because, you know, it's interesting. The Cleveland police said, you guys are really at the cutting edge of the law here. Nobody else is doing this. And they said, and you're asking us without due process to board up a house. And they said, we want you on the site with us when we do it. So uh, Mark Mastrangelo, Lee Fisher, Mike White, we, we all wore body armor because the Cleveland SWAT team, I'll never forget it being out there. And they said, you understand my job is not to protect your life. I said, that's a lot, rather chilling comment to hear from an officer as we're about <laughs> to go into a drug house. <laughs> we, carried, we carried badges, by the way, but uh, Kent Marcus, who now runs uh, Richard Cordray's uh, operation, Kent Marcus was chief of staff to Lee, <laughs> and then we in the Cleveland office said, can we carry guns too? And he said, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> get Capital Letter, it's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit Cleveland.com slash Capital Letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. Did you know that one in six Northeast Ohioans struggle with hunger? Unexpected expenses, prescription costs, and rising heat costs are all things that can prevent people from being able to put food on the table. And they are forced to make difficult decisions that often result in hunger. But you can help with the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. Each dollar that you donate to the Harvest for Hunger campaign will result in four meals. Donate today by visiting harvestforhunger.org. Help feed your neighbors. Cleveland.com is a sponsor of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's Harvest for Hunger campaign. 
So you guys spent some time teasing out Bill O'Neill's meandering career path, right? Yeah, I mean, we we talked about his, you know, service and just, I mean, there's so many different career paths. I don't know, Mary, what you think. I get the sense that if he were to stop, he would be bored. He'd be too bored. I don't know if you kind of got that vibe. Yeah, I just think he is interested in a lot of different fields. I think that he likes to stay busy. I think that that's clear. I, I asked him how long his resume is, and he said, well, I could make it really long or I can make it really short. I bet it would be, you know, several pages. He's just done a lot. I, I And he kind of keeps moving, you know, after one path sort of comes to, I think he is grateful for his prior experiences, but I also think he's very forward-looking. I think that he just is all about open doors and experiences. And I think it's a really kind of astonishing and admirable that he's been able to pursue so many different passions in his lifetime. I mean, most people find one passion and try to do that as best as they can. He's had like four or five different really successful careers. Bill O'Neill kind of occupies a quirky space in Ohio politics, you know, uh, and so I think we can tend to look at people like that sort of in the abstract, but I just personally am really fascinated with the idea of somebody who's done as much as he has and, um, you know, I'm kind of jealous I didn't have a chance to sit in with it. With that, let's listen to more from the interview with Bill O'Neill. I just want to point out, we've been chatting with you for about 15 minutes. Oh, and, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. But the, but the thing is, I mean, you have had several careers over the course oh, yeah. of your, yeah. your, your life, more careers than most people of your generation. Uh, are you just interested in a lot of different things? Like That's we haven't fair. even, That's we, haven't, a fair statement. we haven't even gotten to your career in nursing. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting because I, I got that very question about a month ago when I retired from the Supreme Court to run for governor. And a, a gentleman out in uh, my, my hometown said, you know, now that your career as a justice on the Ohio Supreme Court is ending, aren't you sad? And I looked at him and I said, you know, it's a, it, you're the first person to ask me that question. And the answer is unequivocally no. I started out as a dishwasher at Ohio University, and I just finished five years on the highest court in the state of Ohio. No, I'm not sad. I'm immensely grateful for the opportunities that have come my way. So you were a dishwasher. You were yes. uh, in the military. You were a reporter. You were an attorney. You, union organizer. Don't you, forget union, union organizer. organizer. <laughs> you uh, worked for the state. You ran for office all before the age of 30, all before the age of 35. Is, is that... I think that, well, yeah. I'd have to look at it, but yeah. sure. Yeah. Let's, let's say that's true. I've, I've always had an active imagination. And I think the one, the, one, the one thread of what you, everything you just described is when I see an opening somewhere where I can make a difference, I go for the opening. I don't worry about the consequences. I just said, let's just do this. We want to talk a little bit about your pivot into healthcare uh, wow. when you decided to become a nurse. That was obviously later in your career. Why did you decide to become an RN? It, it really is pretty simple. I was at the top of my career at that point. I was a court of appeals judge in Warren, five counties. I had been elected and reelected. And I reached the conclusion that uh, I have chosen to spend my entire life surrounded by angry grown-ups. That's all you ever see as a lawyer or as a judge is angry grown-ups and everybody wants to win. 
And I thought, there's got to be more to this in life. So I started at Ursuline and then, uh, you know, never never try and negotiate money with a nun. You'll always lose. And I was, uh, I was two years into Ursuline and I ended up at uh, Huron Road, which is in East Cleveland. I was 50 years old and I was not the oldest member of the class. It was predominantly uh, nursing assistants and secretaries who wanted to become RNs. It was back then when you could get a two-year RN degree. And uh, the, the first day they threw me up, uh, I think we were maybe three weeks into the program, and we were up on the floor of Huron Road Hospital, and I said, this is where I belong. I just loved it. How long do you think your resume really is? I can make it short or long, whatever, whatever anybody's looking for. <laughs> you know, I mean, for example, in running for governor, I can just say I'm a retired Supreme Court justice, so I'm prepared. But then I can say I'm a registered nurse, and that makes me prepared. I can say I'm a retired lieutenant colonel, United States Army. That makes me prepared. Uh, my, my, my wife died in a car accident when my kids were young, so when I hear the word single parent, I know exactly what people are talking about. And uh, I'm an adoptive parent as well. I've got... I got the only orphan in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, and he's, I think Brandon's 30 now. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it about, you know, I guess I want to go back to Mary's question a little bit, though. So it's it's all of these experiences kind of lumped into one. I mean, what, what makes you want to have all these different experiences? Most people get in, you know, I'm a journalist right now. Sure. I'm looking ahead 50 years, whatever. I'm going to be a journalist. Like, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Maybe. Maybe. That's the plan right now. I mean, was that always the plan every time you took something new? Like, no, no, no. this Life, is what I'm going to do? Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to correct you, Seth. You're a journalist today. You have no idea what the future brings. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that life is what happens in the middle of your plans. And that's what's always happened for me. When I see an opportunity, I seize the day, seize the moment. I, I think why I'm sort of interested, especially being a member of your generation, uh, many, you keep saying my generation. I'm a baby boomer, right? You're a baby boomer. <laughs> baby boomers. Are you a millennial? I I think I fall into that category. See, I don't like labels at all. But let's, uh, let's I, figure no, out who I, we I are. I don't like labels we either. Didn't pick the label. Yeah, it was bestowed. Upon I don't us. think any millennial says that they want to be a millennial. It's not a good thing. I agree. Um, I agree. So, so I guess what my question is: many baby boomers got out of college and worked at the same job for. 30, 40 years. That's sort of a hallmark of many people who were sure. born around the time that you were. When you're talking about my generation, I'm a millennial. They talk, and I'm not saying they're correct, but you know, many people have many different careers in the course of their lifetime. It's not as common for someone, a baby boomer, to pivot as much as you did. Well, let's let's look at who let's look at who we were following after World War II. The the, the veterans came home. Everybody got a new house because the government made the, the, the house available. Everybody got a new Chevrolet, and they stayed in the same job until they got their watch at 25 years, and they went into retirement. Then the baby boomers, we overwhelmed the university system in the 60s and 70s. Way too many of us got college degrees that probably didn't really need a college degree, but uh, we got them. And then for the generation that follows us, the internet has happened before our very eyes, and so the the corporations that used to exist and you, you could start with and end with don't exist anymore. You know, you, our generation and your generation has been bought and sold on Wall Street for at least 50 years now, and so uh, we as baby boomers, and particularly myself, 
uh, as I said, when I was a union organizer and I saw that lawyers were making a bigger difference than I was, I followed that opportunity, and that's how I became a lawyer. When I was a lawyer, I saw that the judges were the ones that were really making the big decisions, so I became a judge, and then then I end up as a court of appeals judge, elected, reelected. I could have easily retired at that job, and I look down the pike and I say, you know, the Supreme Court is really where policy is being made in the state of Ohio, and I want to be there. And I made, I think, a significant impact when I said, I'm running for the Supreme Court, but I'm not doing it the way everybody else does it. I'm going to take no money from nobody. And my, my friend, Judge Karpinski from here in Cuyahoga County, Diane, I just love her dearly. She's an Eng a tenured English professor, and she says, you mean no money from no one. And I said, Judge, it's no money from nobody. And uh, the Ohio Democratic Party did not agree with me. God love them. And uh, they ran uh, they ran a uh, opponent against me in the, the primary in 12. And I won in 87 out of 88 counties without raising a dime from anyone. And then I went on to defeat an incumbent who's a real nice guy who's now a state rep, uh, Bob Cup. We got along extremely well on the campaign trail. And, uh, you know, to answer your question of pivoting and following the light, uh, at the end of that campaign, I owned the Internet. I was the first judicial candidate in Ohio to understand the value of Facebook. And uh, we had, uh, we had uh, just an immense presence on the internet, but we knew we were going to lose in the final week because Bob had $2 million to spend on TV. And then some very misguided people in Columbus decided to personally attack me. And they took a case that I had ruled upon, which was a rape case. And I'd ruled properly with two other judges. And they ran a $2 million uh, campaign suggesting that Judge O'Neill is friendly with rapists. And, and the world was horrified. The Ohio State Bar Association jumped in. The newspapers changed endorsements. It was just, a, it was just an amazing time in, in politics that I was right and they were wrong, and the world recognized it. So you actually ran for Ohio Supreme Court a couple of times. Yes. And uh, you weren't successful in your first two, two attempts, correct? Right. They had, nobody, they had nobody to run. Democrats had nobody to run in 2004. And uh, I showed some interest. That's about three chairmen ago, mm -hmm. and uh, I said I'm a I'm an Irish Irish Catholic judge from uh, from Northeast Ohio. And they said, Well, we we're interested in you. Those are great credentials. So I ran against an Irish Catholic judge from Northeast Ohio by the name of O'Donnell. Didn't work out too terribly well. Is that why you think you didn't win those races? Well, Terry Terry had good uh, name recognition. I had good name recognition, but he had incumbency and he had a lot of money. And you tried running for Congress a couple times as well, right? I did. Why did you decide to go the uh, the legislative route instead of the judicial route? Well, it's interesting because I'd been an assistant attorney general for 12 years, and I thought I made a big impact in that office. I had been a court of appeals judge, including presiding judge, for 10 years, and I finally just decided there are some policies in America that I'm just fundamentally opposed to, and uh, I have an exceptionally good career behind me. I have uh, rave reviews from newspapers and editorial boards. And, you know, I was, I was a good judge. And I said, I'm going to try Congress. 
Unfortunately, I ran again against a friend, Steve, the late, great uh, Steve Lotterette. We went to high school and law school together. We never spoke a crossword uh, between us, and uh, unfortunately, I was badly, badly outspent, and, uh, and the, the incumbency in Congress, come on, let's be honest, it's taking out an incumbent member of Congress is next to impossible. I want to know where, you know, you talked about 2012 a little bit in that Ohio Supreme Court race. And, you know, most people, when they jump into a race, they, you know, it's got to go through their head, I need money. I need sure. a lot of money. And you mentioned the Internet, but what is it, you know? Message. Yeah, this, is that what it was? It's I mean, message. is that why you thought $4,000 oh, no was like, hey, we can do this on hey, when grand. I When I ran against Terry O'Donnell in uh, the second time, uh, we were on the front page of the Sunday New York Times because I had bought a printing press and I was printing my own literature with my God love of my kids. I'm, I'm so glad we all still have our fingers, but uh, we, we were on the front page of the New York Times because I had the idea. And the idea is that judges should not be taking money under any circumstances. It is such a special place in our society. They should not. So I didn't mind being uh, outspent in uh, 2002, 2004. You know, the Democratic Party seems to forget the fact that they had no candidates for Supreme Court, and I ran. You know, so, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not afraid of a good, clean fight. In 12, I knew I was going to be outspent, but I'm telling you, I had, uh, I had uh, Chris Clevenger from uh, uh, Kent State, who's going on to be quite a political consultant, and uh, he and I put this internet uh, idea together with my daughter, Katie, who was from Ohio U at that time, and uh, we just had a ball. We had a ball, and uh, we have a. Uh, uh, if you go to YouTube and look at money and judges, you'll see me and the uh, the, the Massio twins uh, throwing money into a barrel, and it, and it was a lot of fun. But it got fifty thousand hits, fifty thousand hits on a video that my daughter Tiffany shot on a one hundred dollar camera. And uh, matter matter of fact, uh, uh, one of the twins in that video is in this room today. That's Joe, who's. Uh, taking time out from Youngstown State to, to be my call-time manager. Why do you think the Democratic Party didn't endorse you in that race or didn't try to kind of get behind you? Oh, are, are you talking about 12? Yeah. Oh, it's not a matter of they didn't get behind me. They recruited a candidate to run against me. Why do you think that is? Oh, because they, they had no faith. The party, the party executive committee had no faith that my message of no money from nobody would work They've said that over the years. I mean, a majority of the members of the executive committee of the Ohio Democratic Party are friends of mine. They have supported me. They've helped me. They helped me get elected in 12. But they were just dead set against my trying to plow new ground with no money from nobody. So they recruited a judge from uh, Hamilton County to run against me. They filed a, just an absolutely scurrilous charge against me with disciplinary counsel. And uh, that cost me $14,000 to defend. And I had a good lawyer by the name of Jennifer Bruner. So it was, it was okay. We did, we did very well there. But uh, no, they, uh, they were dead set against me being the candidate in 12. And I won in 87 out of 88 counties. So I've always had the rank and file Democrats on my side. It's the leadership that I still have some educating to do. You mentioned why you think that campaign was effective with the messaging. Uh, is there any other reason you think that campaign was effective? No, I think it was it was message and the internet before anybody else had discovered the internet. Today, you know, you know, uh, Seth, you're on 
you're on Twitter all the time because that is the that is the highway of information now. Uh, okay, much like you say, you know, the people that are younger than me communicate different than I do. You know, uh, we never used to have the internet. You know, people used to talk to each other face to face. But in 2012, Facebook was just coming. You know, MySpace was fading, and Facebook was coming on. Uh, Twitter was really not being used by anybody. And I had a band of young people who understood how to get a message out. And uh, next thing you know, people were saying, maybe judges shouldn't be taking money. Uh, I, I enraged every judge in Ohio when I announced. I said it then, and I mean it now. Do you really want to have a judicial system in Ohio where your case is decided by a judge who took a $100 contribution from your opponent's lawyer at a cocktail party last night. Is that the kind of system we want to be proud of? And I'm not proud of it, and it needs to change. I think I guess the question I'm leading to is, do you think your Irish last name helped? Absolutely. But people who say I was elected to the Supreme Court on the name O'Neill have got a very, very uh, short memory. My name was O'Neill when I lost two times. And it was my, uh, it was my name when I won. So you know I'm not I'm not taking that as you know everybody says well he's just got a good name. But by the way, is running for governor, it's going to carry me. Why do you why do we see so many Ohio Supreme Court justices with Irish last names? It's kind of this I don't know it's this like phenomenon in the state. You know you've got O'Connor, O'Donnell, O'Neill, Kennedy. What what is it about the Irish last name? What does well that's it? only four out of seven. Well, you know, that's not, <laughs> not a bad rate right there. Well, it's not a bad rate, but, you know, you, Seth, you raise a great question is uh, when I got there in uh, 2013, I became the first Democrat elected to the Supreme Court of Ohio in 30 years. And so, uh, you know, somebody had to have looked at my credentials, and my credentials in the legal community are extremely strong. But, yeah, we're... You know, uh, Chief Justice O'Connor and I, you know, if you look at our voting records, we're very close to each other, ideologically. Can a $4,000 campaign ever be replicated? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you get, if you get the right message, you can do it. And that's, that's how, you know, I like to say that uh, when I'm in this race for governor right now, I've always been the candidate of ideas. I've always been outspent. I have never lost a statewide primary other than losing to Dick Celeste in 74. Never lost. So I'm not, I'm not worried about the odds makers. I'm not worried about the naysayers in Columbus. Uh, matter of fact, I'm, I'm on record right now as telling the Ohio Democratic Party, I do not want your endorsement, and I do not want an endorsement from the county parties. I think if we learned anything in 16, that's how you divide the party and lose in November. We talked a lot about your career over the course of your life, but I also want to ask you about your family. You know, you seem like such a devoted father, and you mentioned how the experience of of losing your wife when your children were very young um, affected you and and being a single parent. Can you talk about how that shaped you as a person and as a a father? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the one thing thing I've learned, and I'd like to pass it on to the world, there are no big deals. When you're, when you're raising four kids by yourself, you know, everything seems like it's a big deal. But in the, the bottom line, if uh, you, you guys are together, you can, you can overcome a lot of obstacles. We had a tradition at our house uh, that, that started when my wife was alive is uh, 
dinner at six o'clock is non-negotiable. And some of my kids were athletes, and the, the rule was that I don't care if you're you're trying out for the United States Olympics team, you're home at six o'clock. And uh, we did that uh, every day for for many years. And uh, that's actually how our adopted son showed up. He just uh, showed up and uh, started having dinner with us because we're. We're a big family, and uh, we have Sunday night dinners, a big thing. And uh, that's how we that's how I met Brandon, and uh, he ended up being my son. How old was Brandon when you met him? Probably eight. He was an orphan. Both parents had died. He was being raised by people in Chagrin Falls. Just a great kid, and he just showed up, and uh, the, there was a, just a great match, and uh, it, we, we made it happen. What, uh, what made you decide to adopt them? Was it just spending the time with them? or Really didn't have any choice. I was dragged into it. I've been trying to reverse it for 25 <laughs> years now. But I put them out at the curb on Tuesdays and nobody takes them. So it's <laughs> Brandon, uh, Brandon uh, got into a dispute with his guardian and we ended up in Joga County uh, Juvenile Court and uh, I was with him and they were going to put him into a uh, somewhere he didn't want to go and uh, uh, the judge finally asked him, he says, where do you want to go? And he says, I want to go live with the O'Neills. And I was in the courtroom, and uh, the late, great uh, Judge Chip Henry said, Judge, what are you doing in my courtroom? And I said, well, I'm here at Brandon's request. And uh, he says, certainly you don't mean that you would take him from this courtroom today. And I said, Judge, he was at my house the last three nights. So, uh, yes, we would take him today. And that was... Uh, that started the adoption process. We went through the adoption process, and, and Brandon and I had a great man-to-man deal. I think it was nine years old. We said we would try it for one year, and either one of us could back away anytime we wanted to. And six months later, we both said, what are we waiting for? So I adopted him. I, I think it's time for us to talk about the Facebook posts. Dump, dump, dump. Yeah. Um, you know, Bill probably made the most headlines of his career, I would imagine, when in November he decided to post on Facebook in kind of a defense of Senator Al Franken, who's now resigned after you know, sexual harassment allegations, that he had bedded 50 women throughout his career. And I, I think. Not his career, his life. His life, yeah, his life. I'm sorry. That wasn't part of his resume. That was I hope not. not. Uh, yeah, it is now. <laughs> sorry, I need to get my composure from that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess he did make it part of his resume, though. When you think about it, he he put it out there and he did it on his political page, and he wanted everyone to know, and everyone was genuinely shocked by it. I don't know that anyone in the state kind of expected that to come from who was at that time a sitting Supreme Court justice. And he does sound legitimately, you know, apologetic about it. He he sounds like he's sorry. That I think ha- he is sorry. I, I, I get that. I get I mean, frankly, your the interaction that you two had when, you know, you asked him about it, I think that's probably the most interesting part of the interview we did with him. And this was a really interesting interview. Yeah, I mean, like, the thing is, uh, what I wonder is, is he sorry that he said it, or is he sorry for all the attention that I got? Mm. And I think he's been told by people that it was inappropriate, and so he's running with that and says it's inappropriate. But I wonder... I wonder whether or not he really gets why you can't say something like that. During his answer, Rick, I couldn't tell if he was 
it's that age old question. Is he sorry he got caught or is he sorry that he actually did it? And I honestly, I don't know the answer. He did sound like he, you know, kind of used it as a learning experience. That's for sure. Yeah. And I think, I think he does. I think I would be remiss if I didn't say, I do believe Bill O'Neill has a respect for women, a deep respect for women. You sit down with him and he talks about his daughters. He talks about his time uh, when he was an attorney, I think, or maybe when he was a judge. He definitely worked on sexual harassment cases. And I think he truly does have a deep respect for women. Do you guys think it's just like a generational thing? I think that's part of it for sure. Um, You know, he is 70. He's not... You know, he he saw something happening and kind of just took it and ran with it. I think, and I think he he had at the time maybe a misconception about why Al Franken and and other men who were accused of harassment why they got in trouble. I I think that what he saw was a witch hunt of men who had relationships with women, and and that's not what the Me Too movement is about. The Me Too movement is about when women get uncomfortable at work or in social situations with men. And that being uncomfortable is sort of a broad term. I mean, that could mean like you feel like you're being harassed or you feel like you're, you know, being assaulted. Like, you know, there it's a wide spectrum, but I really believe that when he posted his missive I guess about all of his dalliances I think he I think he did that thinking that his relationships were going to be used as collateral against him when nobody's saying anything about people having consensual relationships that's not what this is about this is about women being uncomfortable at work women being uncomfortable in social situations and I wonder when he posted that, whether or not he got the difference or understood the difference, I guess. There's some overarching irony to it as well, because I think you could you could take that thread that you just pulled right there and say, it, yeah, it's, you know, it's about women being uncomfortable at the workplace. But it's, you know, if you go one step further, it's about men being inappropriate in the workplace. And here you've got this judge who, you know, judges are in the political world, judges are held in a much higher regard than just about any other position. They're supposed to be nonpartisan. They're supposed to be non-controversial, for sure. And here you have a sitting Supreme Court justice who basically comes out and says, well, you know, just to head off any attackers that I might have, uh, you know, I had sex with 50 beautiful women, and by the way, here are some identifying characters or features of them. Yeah, like, uh, you know, he he was very descriptive. I, I think in the original post he said where some of them worked Mm -hmm. Uh, all right with that let's get to more of the interview with bill o'neill so i want to jump into some of the more current stuff as well oh dear this is not gonna be as pleasant as it was (laughs) katie save me well you know despite a pretty you know there's a lot of good stuff going on yeah well and i mean despite like i said a storied career you've angered a lot of people from time to time sure um you know the one one of them that jumps out to me is the nfl anthem protest sure yeah you wrote uh, I will never attend a sporting event where the draft-dodging millionaire athletes disrespect the veterans who earned them the right to be on the field, on that field. Shame on you all. That goes against a lot of what rank-and-file Democrats kind of think. Sure. And, and, and it's over the top. I understand it's over the top. But I was uh, 
I was clearly angered at that time. Uh, and uh, for example, I've been criticized by a lot of people who remind me there is no draft, so they can't be draft Dodgers. And I, and I, I was being uh, superfluous there. But uh, the reality is, I stand strongly with the athletes and their message. I'm a civil rights lawyer. I have an African American son. I understand the message. I understand the inequalities in America. But what everybody else has to understand is I'm a veteran. And uh, when somebody disrespects the flag, I feel obligated to stand up in defense of the flag. So I was, I was serious about it. I stand for your message. I'll help you spread your message. I've been a civil rights activist my entire life. But uh, I will not be present when the American flag is disrespected. I'm curious if you think should nobody protest during the national anthem ever? I mean, is that kind of the opinion that you have? If you were asking me to write the rule, that's certainly the rule. I think we all owe a debt of gratitude to those who served and died before us. The American flag stands for respect for their service, and I just think it is highly inappropriate for anyone to disrespect the American flag. Just a, a quick idea. Uh, if the point of the protest is kind of disruption and getting the message out there, I mean, sure. you know, you were hauled away in handcuffs because of, you know, activism and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, were the, do you think the protests were effective? You mean the NFL players' protests? No, I do not think it's effective. I think, I think they've got a strong message that they should be serving and, and, and you know, protesting in great ways. You know, for example, I think they should be, the NFL players, they should be out and becoming activists in the community. We have a big problem with police relations in America. The athletes should be taking their notoriety and their money and making a difference electing council members that hold police officers accountable, electing mayors who will stand up and say, this is not going to happen on my watch. No, there's lots of ways that NFL players can use their notoriety to affect change in society, and I will support them all day long in that. Just don't be disrespecting the flag. That's all I'm saying. And by the way, I acknowledge their right to disrespect the flag. I'm just saying I will not be there. Over the last few months, we've seen women come forward with various uh, accusations of sexual harassment, and it's led to this movement that has been called the Me Too movement, where women are coming forward and talking about problems that they've experienced in the workplace. I I would be remiss if we didn't address a Facebook post that you put out last fall uh, where you talked about some of your relationships very bluntly, uh, some sexual relationships. I'm going to be completely honest with you. When I saw your post, I was shocked, and I think a lot of women were shocked at what you said. To me, it, it when I read it, it sounded like you were objectifying women, uh, like you were bragging about being with women. And sitting down with you for the last 40 minutes or so, you're a proud dad. It sounds like you have a lot of respect for women. And so I guess I'm confused. Sure. when I When I see that Facebook post that you put out there without any context and then just sitting down with you and talking to you, sure. It doesn't seem like it's the same guy. And so I'm curious, what was that all about? Well, th- th- thanks for the question, because I think it's, uh, it's important we discuss this. Let's start with the end of the story, which is uh, I live a life where uh, I believe that when you're wrong, you promptly admit it. And there's no question, and you talk about the women in my life. I've got two daughters and two sisters, and I heard from all of them within 60 minutes of the post, and they said, we are offended, and you are wrong and you are to apologize. And I thought, oh my gosh, I meant to offend no one. 
what happened there was what I called the the wolf pack that was going after Al Franken and was denying him anything even remotely resembling respect. He was a Democratic United States senator who at that time had admitted to stealing a kiss during a comedy skit 12 years ago for which he had apologized and the person involved had accepted the apology and somehow the national movement changed to equating him to Roy Moore, who was just a, a, a vile man in the, in the South, and demanding his resignation from the United States Senate after years of supporting women's rights. So what I said was, as a candidate for governor, I assume I'm the next, I'm the next uh, victim here. So may as well say it. I've had, you know, uh, relations, consensual relations over 50 years with people, and it was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. I did do it, and uh, I apologized, and I moved on. But I think what's what's more important is, did I learn from it? Of course. The Me Too movement uh, is honorable. You defended Franken pretty vigorously. I uh, did. He ended up resigning after a lot of the these accusations came to light. Do you still think he shouldn't have resigned? I think that he suggested that the appropriate review here would be the uh, Senate Ethics Committee. Let's put all the cards on the table and decide what is the appropriate uh, result. And uh, uh, I think it should have gone that way. I, uh, you know, I've been, I've been defending women and men for 50 years right now. And if there's one thing that I hold highest in, in, in my value system, it's due process. It's due process. And Al Franken did not get due process. It's up to him to decide whether or not resigning was a good idea. And but Franken and everyone else in politics that you know they are elected. If you're an elected official, you have to answer to the people. You know he wasn't kicked out of the Senate. Yes, he, he was. Yes, he was. Well, he left on his own accord. I don't think so. I, I I think when the Democratic senators started ganging up on him and saying there will be new, no due process for you, he was kicked out of the Senate, and that was wrong. But he also, it's not like they came and carried him dragging out of the Senate or anything like that. You know, he left. He resigned. You know, whether that came from pressure from someone else or whether it came from public pressure pressure is mostly irrelevant, really, because he did leave on his own accord. Do you think that, I mean, should all politicians kind of hold on until there's some oh, sort no, of— Oh, no, no, uh, no. I'm not saying that. And that's that's clearly what I'm saying in, in my own defense. If you're wrong, you should promptly admit it. To make an imperfect analogy, so like a Nixon type or something, you know, he was, you know, he left before he got any hearings. He left before he got any due process. He heard the footsteps. He knew he was going to be impeached, and I think it was, I think it was good for the country for him to leave. And uh, no, I, I, I think even, even politicians are entitled to their day in court, and that's, that's what I was trying to address. And I did a terrible job of it. I made a mess. I hurt, I hurt the people that I love, and I promptly admitted it. So it's. Uh, it's unfortunate it happened, but, uh, you know, I will be judged ultimately by the voters in Ohio uh, based upon a 30-year career that's been untarnished. Do you think that's the case, though, with 2018? I mean, especially since all of this stuff is, you know, I know that I wrote the you know story about the Facebook post, and it was huge. It spread everywhere. I yeah, mean, I think made the Washington C Post. Yeah, I think you're on CNN talking about it, if I'm not mistaken. Or no, whatever. I was not on CNN. Okay, I, okay. I stopped talking. I've got a committee that says <laughs> there's there's a time to stop talking, and that's when I did. Well, you know, it was it was covered all over the place. Sure, it and was. I mean, or you know how? Well, you know, it's 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 sex. 
sex sells. Everybody's excited about sex. They, they, they forget the fact that I was happily married for 10 years and I was absolutely loyal to one woman. You know, they, they forget the fact that I'm a child of the 60s and uh, when I came back from Vietnam, uh, having multiple consensual partners was not the exception. It was the norm. How do you think voters are going to be able to move beyond? I mean, just, you know, think about it. If it's sure. the first Google that anyone does comes up with, you know, this Facebook post or anything like that, how do how do voters move beyond that then? I mean, what's... I have a lot more faith in the voters than, than to think that some inappropriate comment uh, from a 70-year-old who's had a wonderful career serving the people of Ohio, I'm not worried. For the first two segments of the show, we did talk about your your career being very storied. I mean, sure. you know, Army veteran, journalist, uh, registered nurse, civil rights attorney, assistant attorney general—all these things. Let's talk. Let's talk about registered nurse for a second, and uh, I'm, I'm going to pivot us away from sex, and let's talk about let's talk about the night that I was at Hillcrest Hospital in the Cleveland Clinic, and a 16-year-old athlete came in dead, and we revived him. We revived him with Narcan because he was a drug overdose, and uh, that was a turning moment in my life because I was the nurse with these hands that saved that child's life on a team led by a doctor, obviously. And I realized when we were all said and done, we turned him over to his parents to send him home to die. And that's why I'm running for governor, actually, because we know, we three sitting at this table, there is nowhere to send addicts for treatment in Ohio. It does not exist. The Glen Bays of the world and the Cleveland Clinics of the world can only take in so many free patients. You know, we, we lost 5,000 lives, 5,000 lives last year to overdose. And I'm, I'm here to say that the state of Ohio, God love them for all their compassion, is doing nothing to address the opioid crisis. And I'm, I'm the one that's, you know, the, the, that's getting great media coverage. I'm saying let's legalize marijuana. Let's legalize marijuana. Let's generate, you know, $500 million in sales taxes for the sales that are going on probably 100 yards from where we're sitting right now and, uh, and just say, let's use that money to open a world-class treatment center, treatment network, and let's, let's really address mental health in Ohio. We're not doing it now, and, it's, and that's why I'm running. I guess what I'm curious about, I mean, you obviously are very passionate about uh, the issues. We've got a card right here in front of us that kind of goes through some of your policy issues, whether or not it be legalizing marijuana, you know, having more hospitals, bringing college tuition in line with reality. I guess what I'm curious about is the thing that happened in the fall was a distraction. And sure. you've got a lot of interesting and dynamic ideas. How do you think voters are going to be able to look past what is the headline grabber and and recognize you as a candidate who stands behind the issues? How, how do you think that will happen or do you think it will happen? I hate to say this to my opponents who have never run statewide. We're about uh, two months out from the campaign. It's a lifetime in the statewide race. It's a lifetime. We saw it last night in front of a, a union hall. And uh, Katie, you mentioned my, uh, my, my platform is in writing. I'm, I'm running against people who have got a platform whose foundation is built on shifting sands. They couldn't agree last night on whether or not they, uh, we should raise the the minimum wage up to $15 an hour. They could not agree on what their positions were. That's, as you know, all over the internet this morning. And I'm, I'm a very unconventional candidate. I've got an eight-point platform that's probably going to grow to 10, but I put things in writing. I'm a judge. What I say 
is first you do the research, then you do the thinking, and then you publish your position with full knowledge from my experience running from statewide multiple times, full knowledge that probably 50% of the public is going to disagree with what you just said and 50% may agree with what you just said, and you're trying to get to the 51. Despite your policy positions, you know, the Democratic Party of Ohio has said that they are concerned about your candidacy, primarily because of these social media posts that we've seen from you. You know, it's not just voters that have to look past it and and see where you are on paper, look at these these policy plans. It's also the party. I I mean, what would you say to that? I mean, you are definitely the underdog. Um, You know, the party party prohibited me from participating in their so-called vetting process for the first six months of this campaign. David Pepper sent me a letter and said, you're not even allowed to be participating until you get a legal opinion that what you're doing is legal. Now, I'm a justice on the Ohio Supreme Court at that time. And I said, I don't need some, uh, some chairman of some party telling me what is or is not legal. Uh, what I did was right, but, you know, as you know, it's, it's in the public realm. We know that the, the Internet is out there. Yesterday I told Scene Magazine, why doesn't, this, why doesn't the Democratic Party just go ahead and, re- and endorse Richard Cordray, which is what they're going to do anyhow, but they're, they're pretending that we have an open primary process. It's a facade. It's a facade. There's no question. They finally got me to agree to go to their so-called vetting process. I was vetted by 2 million voters in 2012. I am the senior elected Democrat in Ohio until I resigned a month ago. I don't need their vetting, uh, but uh, they said they wanted to vet. And what they said, what the Democratic Party said was, okay, come be vetted by a committee. Everything that we talk about will be confidential. I said, okay. So I went down. I answered every single one of their questions like I will do for you today. And they said, this is confidential. So three days ago, the chairman gets up and reads a report that's supposed to be confidential to 144 executive committee members, and then he releases it to the press. Uh, I've had the Democratic Party try to stop me before. As I said, last time they tried this, I won 87 out of 88 counties. I welcome the fight. Do you think you handled your resignation and the announcement the best that you could have? I mean, it did kind of cause a firestorm. I mean, we've seen legislation come in Columbus to uh, basically bar anything like that from happening again. I mean, do you think it could have been handled better, or do you think no. you handled it properly? No, no. I'll, as a matter of fact, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take it right off the table for everybody. It was brilliant. What I did was brilliant. When I decided to run for governor, I had my staff get together with two fellow justices, and we looked at what was in the pipeline. There were 99 cases that were pending. Every single one of them was an important case. And I said in Chagrin Falls at my announcement, when those 99 cases have been decided, I will leave. To do otherwise would have been absolutely an abdication of my responsibility as a justice. People are, people are saying, you know, once you become a candidate, there's only one way to become a candidate. You file your petitions and you become a candidate. I made a pledge to the people of Ohio. I would not circulate petitions. I would not raise money until I finished those 99 cases. I stuck to my word, and uh, I, am, I am offended by justices, judges who are questioning it. The law is very clear, and I followed it. We also had, you know, Dave Yost and Naraj and Tani and, you know, some other lawmakers. Two who people were... I highly respect, of course. I sense some sarcasm there. 
David, David Yost has no standing to be questioning what I'm doing. David Yost was the auditor of Ohio when $100 million went missing. I don't have to listen to David Yost under any circumstances. <laughs> so I take it you disagree with their assessment that, you know, what you were doing was, I, I don't remember the exact quotes, but basically uh, politicizing the court is what they kind of Oh, call yeah, it. and that's just, uh, that's, that's tragic that anybody would take that word. I'm the one that took politics out of the election of Supreme Court justices. I'm the only Democrat in 30 years to get elected. I'm the only justice in the history of Ohio to get elected statewide, not taking money, dirty or otherwise. And don't forget that New York Times article in 2006 indicated that the person I was running against had a 91% rating of people who contributed to him that won at the Supreme Court level. And I'm not saying he's crooked, by the way. He's a dear friend of mine. But uh, money and judges, no, I've, I've set record-breaking precedents at the Supreme Court for cleaning up the way we elect justices. I will not, I will not accept the suggestion that I politicized anything. One question we've been trying to ask all of our guests, the name of this podcast is Ohio Matters. And we want to know, does Ohio matter? Does it still matter as much as it always has? Is it going to matter as much in the future? Well, as a native of Ohioan for my whole life, uh, of course, Ohio matters. Uh, Ohio is, uh, you know, it's got the history of winning World War II. You know, where do you think all the rubber came from for World War II? But Akron, where did the steel come from? Is Youngstown, where did the tanks come from? Cleveland, Brook Park, uh, Ohio has always mattered, and we've always led the way in a lot of things. Uh, uh, that's why I'm uh, passionate about uh, we have to get back to where we were. Once upon a time in Ohio, we had a network of mental health hospitals where the most vulnerable members of our society could go and be treated. And a decision was made uh, back in the 80s, uh, or the 70s actually, to close all those hospitals and the theory was that we would send people back to wherever they came from and they'd magically be treated. And where they ended up in was in jail. Majority of our mentally ill patients, citizens in Ohio, are in jail, which is precisely where they don't belong. And that's why I'm running on the platform. We need more hospitals and less jails. And let's, let's, let's really talk about Ohio matters that, you know, we could become the world leader in marijuana and hemp. We have fertile ground. Uh, there is a giant market out there. Uh, you know, we, we, uh, we regulate and tax beer and wine, and we imprison people for marijuana. And, uh, you know, that gets me to another area that we could, we could set the world on fire with is this privatizing of our public sector employees has to stop. It just has to stop. It's morally reprehensible. We have citizens running for-profit prisons. How do you get out? How do you get out of prison other than convincing your 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 jailers that you're a good guy and that jailer has an economic interest in you staying? It, it, it is morally reprehensible and it is it is just totally unacceptable in a, in a free society. So, we got a lot to do to make Ohio matter, but uh, uh, I want to. I want to put. I want to put solar panels on top of every government building in Ohio, and I'll be. I'll be darned. I've been saying that for six months. I haven't found one person that says it's a bad idea. So my question is, why aren't we doing it? Is there a reason? 
you know, 20 years ago, we had a feasibility study that uh, that uh, be a good idea to have a high-speed rail from Cleveland to Cincinnati. It was a good economic idea. And, and instead, we built a third lane on Interstate 71. Makes no sense at all. Used to have We used to have an education system that, as we discussed earlier, a working-class family could put three kids through a state university at the same time. That's how I ended up as a dishwasher. Mary Kay ended up as a hat check girl and, uh, you know, with the kids working. But today, what used to cost $1,000 now costs $25,000, and that's just fundamentally wrong. It's just fundamentally wrong. How do you think you've seen Ohio change over the course of your life? I think Ohio's government used to care about its citizens a lot more than it does today. I think, uh, I think our state government has been sold to the highest bidder. I think that our universities are out of control, and that used to be a stepping stone to, uh, to success. Uh, I'm a product of community colleges. When I, went, when I went to nursing school, I went to Tri-C, highest quality education that I've, I've ever seen anywhere. But I, I think that we are pricing things out of reach for everyone, and I just don't think the state government, you know, the, this idea of privatizing services is is clearly politically driven and it's economically driven. Rich people are getting richer and poor people are getting poor. You know, uh, I think we could we could set we could set the the world on fire by adopting $15 an hour. I was told by a guy that owns 10 restaurants that if we go to $15 an hour, uh, it'll be the end of sit-down dining in Ohio. Over. And I said I couldn't disagree more. You take a dishwasher, you take a dishwasher who's making $9 an hour. Give, give, give her $15 an hour. Next Saturday, she will go out and buy a Jeep Wrangler that's built in Toledo. And next Saturday, she may take a friend of hers to this very restaurant. And if you have to raise the cost of your burger from $8 an hour to $9 an hour to, to help the lower-level workers enjoy the American dream, she doesn't care because she can't afford to eat here at, eight, at an $8 burger. But at $9, I think it's a great stimulator. And I don't see the state of Ohio stepping forward and saying, let's shake things up. And, you know, that's, uh, that's why I'm here. We're going to shake things up and, uh, and we're going to start. We're going to start by giving, giving emergency room somewhere to send an addict rather than home to die. All right, Bill, thanks so much for joining us. This was much more fun than I expected. Oh, really? Oh, I'm glad minute. you we enjoyed still, it. We still, <laughs> oh, we're all done. Thank you so well, much for joining good. us. <laughs>